Well, thank you so much, Joe and team, for leading us in song this morning. We now come to the preaching of God's Word, and we are in John 13. I really can't think of a portion of Scripture that I am more thrilled and excited to be in, and Lord willing, we'll be in it for the next number of likely months. But before we get to even some of the, the glory of this section of Scripture, John 13 through 17, we've got to deal with Judas. And one of the beauties of expository preaching is that you would almost never preach this portion of Scripture if you were just lifting Scripture out of the Bible and preaching that from one Sunday to the next. But we, we come to this portion of Scripture and we come to Judas. And as we prepare to dive into this portion of Scripture, let's read it, John 13, 18 to 30. It reads, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it takes place, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, for some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. The life of Judas is the most tragic life in all of human history. Hell is a, a place of intense regret, a place where there is no relief from regret, where all of the, the regrets of this life will be upon a person's mind and conscience in an unmitigated way for all of eternity. And no one will experience more regret in hell than Judas. It's difficult to fathom the extent of his squandered opportunity, squandered privilege, and squandered exposure to the truth. Judas witnessed the miracles of Jesus, the teaching and preaching of Jesus, and the character and conduct 
of Jesus. Judas engaged in performing signs and miracles. The preaching of the good news of the kingdom and other aspects of the ministry of Christ. And yet the entire time he was an imposter, a pretender, a fraud. And when all was said and done, he rejected the Lord of glory, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and then under the agony of his own guilt, hung himself. Jesus says of him, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This is Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. And it's on this night that he is ousted as the traitor that he is and goes down as the most notorious traitor of all time, even to the extent that the name Judas is virtually extinct. You would curse your child to name him or her Judas. And now it's time for him to go, to abandon the group, to leave the 12, to to remove himself from the inner circle of the Lord's disciples. There were things that Jesus needed to say to his, 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 his disciples, to the 11. He needed to equip them with critical instruction. He, he needed to make magnificent promises to them. He, he needed to institute the, the Lord's supper and all of that required that Judas be absent. In fact, the, the tension is already apparent because after saying, if you know these things, verse 17, you are blessed if you do them, Jesus has to qualify that because Judas is still in the room and there will be no blessing for Judas. No opportunity for blessing. Instead, he would be a man eternally cursed. And so it's the night on which Jesus was betrayed. He and his disciples are in the upper room. In stunning fashion, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas. And at this point in time, the meal is now in motion. And in accord with the divine timeline, Judas must begin to execute his act of betrayal the very act that was already in his heart to accomplish, where he would ultimately hand Jesus over to the governing authorities. And what's amazing is, as we'll see in this portion of Scripture, no one even remotely suspects Judas. And the disciples need to know in advance that his act of betrayal wasn't some unforeseen development, but instead was an integral part of the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. Otherwise, the, the faith that would have remained following the crucifixion of Christ, an event that they still didn't yet appreciate, could have been entirely shattered. And so this, the disciples need some prophetic preparation. And that's exactly where our Lord begins. If you're taking notes, jot down first prophetic preparation. We'll see this in verses 18 to 20. And so look at verse 18. It says there, I do not speak of all of you 
I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is now alluded to an intruder twice. The first time came back in verse 10, where Jesus said, and you are clean, but not all of you. In fact, John provides inspired commentary in verse 11 when he says, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And he alludes to it here. When he says, I do not speak of all of you again, qualifying the the blessing of verse 17. And given what was about to unfold, Jesus didn't want the disciples to be caught off guard. He didn't want them thinking that he had made some error in judgment. And so he states, I know the ones I have chosen. Now, how are we to understand this? Well, one way is to exclude Judas, to exclude him from those who are chosen. In that sense, Jesus would be laying claim to the 11 minus Judas, such that Judas isn't chosen. The problem is Jesus has already referred to Judas as chosen. He did so back in John six seventy, where he says, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Even Judas was chosen. So what's he saying? He's saying he knows who he has chosen. He knows them through and through. He knows what's in the heart of a man. He's not caught by surprise at the betrayal of Judas. He isn't caught off guard by the presence of a traitor. He's been aware of it the entire time. In fact, the presence of a traitor is to fulfill Scripture. That's what it says there. But it is that the Scripture may be be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Judas was chosen. He was just chosen for an entirely different purpose. Jesus is citing Psalm 41.9, a Psalm of David, which says this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Even David himself was on the receiving end of treason. To sit at the table of another and eat their bread was a sign of intimate fellowship. It was also deemed to be a pledge of loyalty. And this likely refers to that time in David's life when his counselor Ahithophel conspired with his son Absalom to overthrow his kingdom. Ahithophel was one of David's counselors. And he would have sat at David's table and eaten his bread. And so what took place in the the life of David would also now take place in the life of the promised son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. When an even greater, more despicable, and more treacherous act of treason would be enacted against him, resulting in his own crucifixion. And this act of betrayal wouldn't just impact Jesus, it would impact the disciples that had the potential to crush them. And so Jesus tells them in advance to prepare them for what's to come. And this comes out in verse 19. 
He says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. This was to strengthen and fortify the faith of the disciples. Jesus was telling them in advance so that when it happened, they would recall this moment and be bolstered in their conviction that Jesus is is exactly who he claimed to be. Sent from the Father, co-equal with him, one in nature with him, the great I am. In fact, even here, Jesus lays claim to the divine name saying that you may believe that I am. By telling them in advance, it would anchor them in the truth, being fully equipped to withstorm the stand of Judas's defection. And spiritual defection is devastating. And then he says this in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receives whomever I send receives me, and he receives me receives him who sent me seems like it's a bit out of place for this point in the flow of this narrative. And yet Jesus is, 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 is anticipating their commission. He, he has the moment when everything unfolds in view and on the heels of his death and resurrection, he is going to commission the 11 to take the gospel to the nations. They would be his ambassadors such that to receive them would be to receive Christ and to receive Christ would be to receive the Father. And that meant that Judas's rejection of Jesus was ultimately a rejection of who? The Father. And his rejection was entirely consistent with their mission since his betrayal of Jesus would ultimately result in his death and resurrection, the very message and work that they would bring to the nations in proclaiming the gospel. This was all about preparing the disciples for what would take place after the cross so that they wouldn't be entirely crushed under the weight of the betrayal of Judas. And I think you can understand why our Lord would have done this. Spiritual defection can be incredibly unsettling when those who claim to have once known Christ, to have once loved Christ, turn their back on him, who who at least outwardly appeared to walk like Christ, who at least outwardly appeared to talk like Christ, and who at least outwardly appeared to be in Christ. When someone who claims to be a follower of Christ ousts themselves as a a, a fake, an imposter, a pretender, it's devastating. I've witnessed the the devastating nature of this even on you. When either one from among our own or or maybe a well-known pastor comes out and and acknowledges they've never known the Lord, if they would even put it in that term, that terminology. Apostasy is enough to shake one's faith. It can make you question your salvation. It can make you question salvation altogether. It can make you question the truth of God, Christ, and the gospel. And so our Lord, being the good shepherd he is, provides needed shepherd care for his disciples so that when it all goes down, they're not blindsided, but instead have been made ready ahead of time. 
And you just need to know this is, this is part of the Christian life. This is part of life in the church. You need to be ready for this. This is inevitable. Betrayal, defection is inevitable, especially in a context where, where biblical ministry is taking place because as the, the truth of the word of God and the glory of Christ are heralded, it exposes worldliness. And given the times that we're in, it's likely, whether here at Grace Life Church or around the world, there will be more and more spiritual defection that takes place. Demonstrating that as those who once claimed to follow Christ walk away from him, never actually knew him to begin with. And so when it happens, as devastating as it is, do not be surprised. It's par for the course. That's the prophetic preparation. But at this point in time, though we know who the traitor is, the disciples don't. Judas has not yet been identified. Jesus has told them there is a traitor in the ranks, but they don't know who it is. In fact, even at this point in time, he hasn't even specified that it's within the ranks. He's just identified that it's a disciple. And so the discussion shifts second to prophetic identification. Prophetic identification. This comes out in verse 21 and following. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And it's important to note that even though Jesus knew that Judas was a traitor and that he was going to betray him to the governing authorities, he is nevertheless deeply troubled in spirit as he anticipates it. And we've seen this before. We saw it as Jesus surveyed the human suffering at the death of Lazarus in John eleven thirty three, prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. We, we saw it at the announcement that the hour of his glorification had come in John twelve twenty seven. a glorification preceded by what? His crucifixion, his suffering. This word here, troubled, is a, a word that describes inner turmoil or agitation. One commentator describes this as, quote, his whole inner self convulsing at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. And even this finds a, a touch point in the, the Psalms and specifically a Psalm of David where, where David describes his own reaction to very similar circumstances. In Psalm 55, 4 and 5, listen, it says, my heart is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and a horror has overwhelmed me. And then he says down in, in verse 14. In fact, let me go. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together. So David understood the, 
the devastating nature of this kind of treachery. And Jesus is here experiencing all the very same things. And so though being in accord with the sovereign plan of God, Jesus felt the betrayal of Judas deeply. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. No one suspects Judas. Matthew and Mark indicate the disciples began to ask, surely not I, Lord. In fact, even Judas himself said this, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Knowing full well it was. And so the disciples are perplexed. That's what it means to be at a loss here. They're, they're perplexed, which is to be in a confused state of mind. They were, they were shocked to find out that among their own ranks, there was a traitor. And bear in mind that they're still confused about the death of Christ. He's, he's talked about his death. He is, he's announced that he would die but they're finding it difficult to square that with their messianic expectations. And now the announcement that there's a, a traitor in their own ranks, that's just compounding the confusion. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, at this point in time, the particular disciple described as the one whom Jesus loved is anonymous. But it's the apostle John. And John will refer to himself in this way four more times. He'll do so at the cross in John nineteen twenty six, when Jesus gives him the responsibility of, of taking care of his own mother. He'll do so when Mary Magdalene comes to him and Peter announcing the empty tomb in John 20 and verse 2. He'll do so when the disciples are, are fishing after the resurrection of Jesus and, and Jesus makes an appearance on the beach in John 21, 7. And of particular importance, he'll do so in laying claim to the authorship of this gospel in John 21, 24. And I want you to turn there for a moment because that will effectively seal the deal for you. This comes on the heels of Jesus restoring Peter, following Peter's denials of him. And in verse 18 of chapter 21, Jesus says this to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, John provides the comment, this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, verse 20, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Therefore, or Jesus said to him, verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, 
that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And then this comment in verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And so the one whom Jesus loved is the very one who is testifying to these things in this gospel. And the one who is testifying to these things in this gospel is none other than the apostle John. So John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And we need to paint the picture of the scene of this supper. The table would have been in the shape of a U. Jesus, as the host of the supper, would have been in the center position. They would have been reclining at the table with their head toward the table, their feet away from the table, and leaning on their left arm. This would then free up their right arm to eat with. Now, on Jesus' right is obviously John, because John is the one that, that leans against his bosom. To his left, though we don't know for sure, may have been Judas. Because Jesus is going to give the morsel to Judas. And so it suggests that Judas was near enough to him to do that. And given the interaction we're going to see between Peter and John, Peter is likely to the right of Jesus, but in a position to be able to make eye contact with John. And so Peter is going to gesture to John. Verse 24, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Now the NASB renders this as though Peter spoke to John. Most translations don't. Instead, they render this in such a way that the gesture itself signals what Peter wants John to do. Listen to the ESV. So Simon Peter mentioned to him or rather motioned to him to ask, of, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so in, in the way that's presented, and I think it's the most consistent way to reflect the Greek of this portion of scripture, Peter doesn't say anything to John. He just gestures to him. Jesus has just announced that there's one in their ranks who was a traitor. John is on the bosom of Jesus, and Peter is looking at John, and John back at Peter, and Peter's going, Ask him without saying anything. Everything that's happening in this moment, at least in my estimation, is incredibly discreet. Peter doesn't say a word to John. He simply gestures to him. John sees the gesture. And then verse 25, he leaning back thus on Jesus's bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? And even if Judas is to the direct left of, of, of Jesus, it's possible John, being against the, the, the breast of Jesus, could have said this so quietly to him that it's, it's just Jesus and John at this point in time. That not, no one else is here in this interaction between him and John. Verse 26, Jesus then answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And even when our Lord had said that, this may have just been interaction between Jesus and John. I would say that by the end of this portion of scripture, you, you come away thinking that John's the only one that knows that, that Judas is the betrayer. 
And, and they, the rest find out later. But even when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have this, this interaction. It's just John. This is, this is eyewitness testimony from John of what happened at that table. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Even Judas himself wouldn't have known that this, this giving of the morsel to him was, was to oust him as the traitor. In some ways, for Judas, this was a, a gesture of love. Here was Jesus honoring Judas by giving to him a, a morsel of bread. Maybe one last appeal to Judas to recognize the error of his way. One last act of kindness and love. And yet it had no effect on him. He received it, remained steadfast in his hardness of heart, and he ate the morsel. And again, as far as I can tell, at that moment, John is the only one of the disciples that knows Judas is the traitor. The betrayer has been identified. And what you have to appreciate about this is that though the disciples have been with Judas for three years, they had done ministry with him. They had spent hours upon hours with him. They had no idea he was the traitor. They had no reason to believe that he was an imposter, a fraud, a fake. He was able to conform his outward life sufficiently enough that no one suspected him. For all intents and purposes, he seemed like he was the real deal. In reality, he wasn't. He was just good at hiding it. And I think, again, instructive for us. The Christian life is a, a race of endurance. It's only those who get all the way to the end who are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes it's by means of the pressure of circumstances that a person's true colors will shine. And oftentimes it's a specific set of circumstances that bring it out. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's not so that you'll get all introspective and look within and try and figure out whether or not you're Judas. That's not the point. It's to prepare you again for when it happens. And inevitably, it will happen. If it could happen within the, the circle of our Lord's disciples, the inner circle of the disciples, then it will almost certainly happen here. And you've got to be ready. And so we see second, prophetic identification. Now, third and finally, prophetic exhortation. Prophetic exhortation, verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. 
This isn't the only time that Scripture records Satan entering Judas. Luke 22.3 indicates that Satan had also entered Judas immediately prior to the deal that he had made with the governing authorities, and that deal was already in place. He had made it prior to the supper. And here Satan enters him again, though there was nothing visible about it. It's not like the disciples would have been able to see Satan enter into him. It was totally a, a spiritual reality. And it's worth noting that, as far as I can tell, this is the only case of demon possession in John's gospel, which is unique because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are filled with with demon possession and Jesus casting out demons. And of all the cases of demon possession in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, on my count, Judas is the only one of whom it said that Satan himself entered into him. Next half of verse 27, therefore Jesus said to him, and here's the exhortation, what you do, do quickly. Time is of the essence. The divine timeline must be kept, and that meant Judas needed to take the next step by revealing where Jesus would be later that night. Verse 28 Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. So, I mean, even John didn't make the connection that that though Judas was the betrayer, that that Jesus telling him to to do quickly what he was about to do was actually Jesus telling him to complete the betrayal. Even John doesn't pick up on this. 4 verse 29, some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. Both were plausible realities. They would need food for the feast of unleavened bread that would take place for the next, the next week. And it was very common to give alms to the poor in accord with the Passover. And so even here, you, you continue to get the impression the disciples were out of touch with all that was happening. That's They just didn't grasp the the significance of of everything. In fact, that's why they're falling asleep at the Garden of Gethsemane. They they, they cannot grasp the gravitas of what is happening in this moment. They're out of touch with it. We can see it because we know how the story goes. They're living it out in time and they can't put it all together. So verse 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And it was night in every way. It was night with respect to the hour. It was night with respect to the fate of Judas. And it was night with respect to the hour and power of darkness, Luke 22, 53. Now, Judas is a willing participant in all of this. He is doing exactly what he wants to do. Yes, Satan had put it into his heart, but Judas was a willing vessel. Judas wanted out. He was finished. He was done. He wanted out and he wanted to capitalize on the whole thing in the process. And you go, well, what's going on in this man's life, in his heart? How do we account for what would have driven Judas to this? Well, we can presume that he was in it for himself. 
He was trying to set himself up for a prestigious place in the kingdom. He was beginning to figure out the kingdom wasn't coming. Maybe he was more dialed in on that than the other disciples. I mean, if he was in it for himself, he would have heard everything Jesus was saying with a, with a certain ear. And, and so he's looking, on the, the, looking at this thing unfold going, this is not going to go the way I thought it was. I was looking for a payday. I'm not getting a payday. So I need to capitalize on this thing. He loved the world. He loved money. We know that from John 12, he was pilfering from the money box. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays the Lord of glory into the hands of the governing authorities. His life is an absolute tragedy. And his betrayal is horrific in terms of the seriousness of his sin. But you know what was even worse than his betrayal? The simple fact that he didn't believe in Jesus Christ. His rejection was even worse than his betrayal. There's nothing worse than rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. To refuse to bow your knee to Christ, to refuse to give him the glory that he is due, to refuse to to believe on who he is, to, to receive him on the basis of his claims, to receive him on the basis of his life, is the worst sin and and enough to plunge you into an eternity in hell. In fact, the only way to not be plunged into an eternity in hell is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You could live a a very morally upright life and yet reject Christ and you're going to spend eternity in hell. Because the only way to stand just before God is to be perfect in righteousness and everyone fails the test. And so as awful as his, his betrayal is, his rejection is worse. And because he takes that rejection all the way to the grave, he dies in his sin and at present is suffering under the wrath of God for the just penalty for his sin. And this is why you need to flee to Christ. This is why you need to recognize that under the weight of the law of God, you are condemned. James indicates that to stumble at one point, to violate the law at one point, is to be guilty of the whole, and yet none of us would claim that we have only stumbled at one point. All of us are condemned under the weight of the law. And deliverance from that condemnation is only available in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he fulfilled the law in every respect and then bore the wrath of God for all who would ever believe on his name. Died, went into the grave, and rose, proving he had conquered both sin and death, our two greatest enemies, And if you would turn from your sin and believe on him, you will be delivered from the wrath to come. 
the most heinous sin is to hear the good news of the gospel and reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you think about where we were last time. Jesus, in a stunning and glorious act of humility, washes the disciples' feet, and now we're dealing with the darkness of Judas. Glory and darkness side by side. Judas is going to go, and Jesus is going to instruct his disciples, and we'll enjoy a number of chapters of glory, and then following that will be the trial, that's an unjust mock trial, then the crucifixion of Christ, the despair of the disciples, followed by the joy and glory of the resurrection, just Glory, darkness, glory, darkness, glory. But glory wins. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so grateful to be able to be at that table, to be there with our Lord, Peter and John, the others, to see Judas be confronted with his unbelief, his betrayal, to see Jesus in his glory. Father, we're so grateful for your word, for this account of all that took place on that night. And we realize how significant it was, what was happening in that room in the very moment that we just visited was significant for all of human history. So, Father, we praise you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, for the salvation that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the responsibility of taking the message of the gospel to the four corners of the earth. We're grateful that our Lord prepared the disciples for all that would take place, and we're so grateful that by your grace they were faithful to preach the gospel to birth the church where even now we are fruit of that work and where we have a responsibility of being in that work as well and ensuring the gospel is heard across the lands. And so, Father, we give you praise and thanks. Help us to sing now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.